Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Several years ago, I watched a documentary about Herb and Dorothy Vogel. The documentary is simply titled Herb and Dorothy because that's how they were known in the art world. Herb and Dorothy Vogel were prolific collectors of modern art. But what makes Herb and Dorothy interesting is that they are far from what you would think when you think of art collectors. Herb never graduated from high school. He served in World War II and then he went on to work as a postal clerk. Dorothy was a public librarian. They lived in a tiny, rent-controlled, one-bedroom apartment in New York. And they had simple criteria for the art that they would purchase. They had to like it. They didn't buy it just because it was important. They had to like it. It had to be inexpensive. And it had to be small enough that they could carry it home on the subway or in a taxi. But Herb and Dorothy had an incredible eye for art. They bought pieces from famous artists before they were famous, and eventually their collecting habits became so well-known among contemporary artists that the artists would consider it an honor if Herb and Dorothy wanted to buy one of their pieces. In fact, one artist who had been approached for the first time by them about buying one of her paintings She asked another artist, you know, what should I charge them for it? Because everybody knew they didn't have any money. And he said, well, whatever you would charge somebody else, take three zeros off of it and then cut that in half. And that's what you should charge them. Even though they had such limited resources, over the years, their collection came to be worth millions and millions of dollars but they never sold a painting. They never moved out of their one bedroom apartment. They just enjoyed having art and supporting artists. Eventually in the 1990s, they donated almost their entire collection to the National Gallery downtown. And the Vogels chose the gallery for their collection because the National Gallery doesn't sell works once it acquires them. So they knew that the National Gallery would keep their entire collection together. And they chose the National Gallery because it doesn't charge admission. When the gallery came to the Vogels' apartment to retrieve the collection, they found this little one-bedroom apartment filled with art all over the walls, of course. You could barely see any wall space. But it was everywhere else, too. Literally, canvases stacked up next to each other against the walls. They'd gotten rid of their sofa in the living room because it took up too much space. They filled that space with art. Everywhere in the apartment, there was art. And once the gallery had crated each piece for shipping, that collection filled five 18-wheeler trucks. Herb and Dorothy could have been rich. They could have been famous. They could have insisted that whatever museum acquired their art name a whole wing or even a whole building after them. But they didn't. 
If you go to the East Wing of the National Gallery, you might see some paintings from their collection on display. But you'll only know the painting was theirs because off to the side, underneath the title of the painting and the artist's name, in tiny little print, you'll see Gift of Herbert and Dorothy Vogel. Herb and Dorothy enjoyed an abundance of art, but ultimately they shared their abundance with generosity and with humility. Abundance, generosity, and humility. Those were the characteristics that described Herb and Dorothy Vogel. And I think they're the characteristics that describe Jesus in our gospel reading this morning in the story of the miracle at the wedding at Cana. It's a familiar story, right? This one of Jesus turning water to wine. So famous that the whole idea, the, the phrase water into wine is something that's just you know, part of our cultural speech. But this miracle is worth paying attention to some specifics about it. This was the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in the Gospel of John. This is Jesus' bursting forth onto the scene. So Mary and Jesus and his disciples are at a wedding in this town of Cana. And the host, the bridegroom, runs out of wine, which is a big deal. Not just because... You know, people want more to drink, although I'm sure they did. But running out of wine would have been this just huge failure of hospitality. And hospitality was everything in the culture of Jesus' day. So if you failed to show generous hospitality at an event like this, at a wedding, it would have been humiliating. People would have always said, oh yeah, you remember Joe's wedding, that one where they ran out of wine? So Mary sees this problem, and her impulse is to to save the host, save the groom from this humiliation. And so she goes to Jesus, who she knows can do stuff, and says, will you do something about this? In fact, she doesn't even ask. She just says, they've run out of wine. And then I imagine looked at him with a very motherly look, like, what are you going to do about this? (laughs) And Jesus is resistant at first. He says, it's not my time. And so Mary, again, in strong mother fashion, doesn't respond to that. She just turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to. So eventually, what he does, he tells them to go fill up these stone jars with water. These jars were held water for the purification rites that people would have to do. They would, um, at different For different reasons in Jewish custom, you would become unclean and you would need to have a ritual bath to make yourself clean again. And so that's what these jars were used for, to store water for these ritual cleansings. And each one holds 20 to 30 gallons. So think four to six of those Orange Home Depot five-gallon buckets, right, in each jar. And there are six of them. So you've got... 20 to 30 gallons in each jar, six jars. If you do the math, you figure out that is somewhere between 600 and 900 bottles of wine that Jesus creates. When they have filled the the jars up, he tells them to draw some out. It's no longer water, it's now wine. And the steward takes it to the master of the feast. 
600 to 900 bottles of wine. Now, I don't know exactly the population of Cana, but these were not big towns in Galilee. Galilee was kind of the podunk part of Israel. The whole town could have been at this wedding, and there probably would still have been more than enough wine. Jesus made so much more than what was needed. Jesus acted in abundance. And Jesus acted in generosity. His meeting this need for more wine was just to save the hopes, or save the hosts, rather, from embarrassment and shame. I mean, nobody was sick. Nobody was dying. There would, there would have been public shame. There would have been humiliation. And those are a big deal, but they're not life or death situations. And yet Jesus meets this need. He performs this miracle of abundance, really just out of kindness and generosity. And then I think most significantly, Jesus performs this miracle with humility. He doesn't go out into the middle of the dance floor, tell the DJ to stop the music and say, okay, everybody, now look at what I'm going to do. He doesn't even tell the bridegroom or even the host of the the master of the feast what he's done. They have no idea where this wine came from. The only people who knew what Jesus had done were the servants who had drawn the water. Jesus acts out of humility. In John's Gospel, Jesus' miracles aren't called miracles, they're called signs. And each sign shows us something about who Jesus is. The The signs show us what kind of a Messiah Jesus is. And what this sign at the wedding in Cana shows us is that Jesus is a Messiah who is characterized by abundance, by generosity, and by humility. And that's what we'll see over and over through this season of Epiphany. Epiphany begins on the Feast of Epiphany, January 6th, and it runs up until the beginning of Lent, which in this case is this year is early March. So throughout these weeks between now and Lent, we'll be reading these stories of Jesus being Shown forth, that's what epiphany means, of, of Jesus revealing who he is, what his purpose is, and what his character is. So we saw this um, two weeks ago with the, the Magi on Epiphany Sunday. We saw them greeting the king and coming to bow down before him, that Jesus was a king. Last week, had there not been snow, we would have heard about Jesus' baptism and how God speaks and says, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And in the weeks ahead, we'll read more stories about the beginning stages of Jesus' ministry. We'll read about how he calls his disciples, how he declares what are the values of his kingdom. And over and over through these stories, these epiphany stories where we see who Jesus is and what he is like, we see that Jesus cares about the vulnerable, about the poor, 
about the marginalized. We see that Jesus will be resisted by people who are powerful, by people who don't want the status quo to be upset. And we'll see that most of the time, Jesus' demonstrations of his power are not done for the powerful, for the important people, but they're done for common people, for vulnerable people, for the unimportant people. This is who Jesus shows himself to be in these epiphany stories. And what's so remarkable about this, I think, is that in doing these things, yes, a great miracle, nobody else can turn water into wine, at least no one that I've met yet, but they were sort of humble, humble, generous, abundant miracles. And what John tells us in this miracle is we see in verse 11, he says, Jesus manifested his glory and his disciples believed him. Jesus manifested his glory. He showed his glory in this abundant, generous, and humble miracle. We tend to think of glory as being big and showy and spectacular, and sometimes it is for God. But often, maybe most of the time, certainly here, Jesus' glory is shown in this small, quiet, basically anonymous miracle, this sign. Jesus' glory, the truth about who he is as the Messiah, as the Son of God, his glory is shown in these acts of abundance, of generosity, and of humility. So I wonder, what would happen if when we thought of Jesus, this is how we thought of him? What if we expected Jesus to be abundant, to be generous, to be humble? What if that is how we expected him to act with us? Jesus can do miraculous, huge, great things in our lives, but often he also does small, generous, humble things. One tiny example of this, just a couple of weeks ago, I was looking on Instagram and saw some uh, photos that friends had shared of, they had a fire pit out in their backyard and they had all these people over gathered around the fire. And I thought, you know, I would really love a fire pit. And the next day I was going to, to visit someone at their home and I pulled in and parked and went in and visited with them for a little while. And, and then I came out about an hour later, and I turned out of their driveway, and at the end of the driveway, across the street, out by the trash bins, was a fire pit. And I stopped, and I got out, and I looked at it, and you know, it's clearly used, but it was in good shape. Somebody had gotten a new fancy fire pit for Christmas, I think, and put this one out by the trash. And so I took it. God gave me a fire pit purely out of the generosity and kindness of his heart. 
Was it a big, big thing? Was it the answer to all of my heart's deepest longings? No. But was it generous and humble and kind? Yes, it was. What if we expected that that is how Jesus would relate to us day in and day out? And what if we expected that that were how he relates to others day in and day out? What if we thought about who does Jesus tend to reveal his glory to? What if we looked for him to be revealing his glory, his generosity, his abundance to the servants of the world, to the unimportant people, to the ones on the margins? To whom does Jesus show his love, his care, his generosity, his abundance? What if we looked for him to be acting among those people? And then what if, as Jesus' followers, this is how we were? What if we were characterized by abundance and generosity and humility? What if we were characterized by abundance, and I don't mean having a lot necessarily, but having an attitude of an abundance, a feeling that God will provide all that we need and so we can be generous with what he has given us. It's interesting, people who study charitable giving in the United States find that people with lower incomes give a higher proportion of their money away than those with high incomes and high worth. You can have an attitude of abundance even with minimal means. It's what Herb and Dorothy did. What would it be like if we had an attitude of abundance? And if we had a posture of generosity with our financial resources, certainly, but also with our time, with our energy, with our prayer? What if we had hearts that were just in a posture of generosity rather than hoarding or scarcity? And what if we really and truly showed humility? Think about what people might be able to accomplish if they didn't care about getting the credit. What if we were willing to give all that we have away, all that we are, away for the sake of others in need, not for our own glory, not for our name on a big art museum, but just out of humility for the good of others. What would happen if this is how we saw Jesus and if this is how we ourselves were? Well, I think what would happen is what happened at the wedding at Cana. Jesus' glory was revealed and his disciples believed him. I think if we expected this of Jesus and if we lived into this ourselves, we would become more faithful disciples and I think we would lead others to being disciples of Jesus as well. In this sign, in this Showing forth of who he is. We see that Jesus is abundant, that he's generous, and that he's humble. 
Let's pray that we would be that as well. Amen.